Good morning, Grace. I want to give you an update on my dad and thank you for praying for him. He's doing much better. He got out of the hospital on Thursday and is recovering well, so thank you for your prayers. And I want to give you an update on my face. If you get close to me, you will see that I am sunburned on only half of my face. So thought I needed to point that out to you. Um, set out in the backyard yesterday and got fried on my arms and face and neck, so I look like a true redneck today. Um, my daughter, Tabitha, this morning said, Dad, look at your arms and face. You can't go to church. <laughs> I said, Tabitha, I don't care what I look like, and I don't care what people think about me, and there's a lot of freedom if you come to embrace that truth. And I said, doesn't sound like freedom. She's like, yeah. And it's like, I'm chopping away at my kids early on, trying to teach them not to live in the fear of man. It doesn't matter what people think about you. So here I am with half a red face, and if you look close, there's a white line right here where my earbuds were hanging down. So this portion of my neck was preserved by my earbuds. And so if, if I was in the South this morning and came to church, no doubt people would look at my sunburned face and I would probably hear this a lot from people. I would hear people say, bless your heart. If you visit the South, like the great state of Texas, for example, you won't be there very long without hearing someone say those words, bless your heart. But if you're not from the South, you may not know that bless your heart has several meanings. And it would be good to know that, especially when you're in Texas. In the South, bless your heart has several meanings. One, bless your heart can be an expression of sympathy or pity in the South. For instance, when someone you love and care about gets hurt or has something bad happen to them, and you say, bless your heart, it means this. Oh, I am so sorry you were going through this, and I wish I could take it away and make things better. Or, for instance, if you're a kid and you fall down and skin your knee at Walmart, don't be surprised if a woman, a total stranger, comes up to you and says, bless your heart, sugar booger. Where's your mama at? You need some Neosporin on that knee, honey. And she just might pull some Neosporin out of her purse and just start applying it to your skinned knee. And if you're still crying, she'll probably pick you up and put you on her knee and hold you tight and tell you at least 50 times, bless your heart, until your mama shows up. That's just how we roll in the South. Bless your heart can also be used as an expression of thanks in the South. For instance, you might say this, you bake me brownies? Oh, bless your heart. Or, you got Whataburger for me? Oh, bless your heart. And if you don't know what Whataburger is, then I know that you have never been to the great state of Texas. Bless your heart can be an expression of sympathy or pity or even giving thanks in the South. But if you visit the South, you need to know that bless your heart has another meaning. It can also mean something else, something entirely different. Bless your heart can also be a lead-in to a very vile insult or a preface to a cut-down. For instance, when someone walks into a room wearing a distasteful out outfit, some lady may say, bless her heart, and it means this, that poor thing has the tackiest taste in the world. So even though it sounds nice, it's really a cut-down. For instance... 
Bless his heart. If you put his brain on the head of a pin, it would roll around like a bowling ball on a six-lane highway. Or even this. Bless his heart. He's as dumb as a sack of rocks. And you can add little phrases to it to make it even better or worse. You could say things like, bless his pea-picking heart. You see, in the South, we believe in being polite, even if it kills us. So sometimes, when we really want to say something nasty, we just add the words, bless your heart, because it makes us feel better. So remember that the next time you visit the great state of Texas, because even though it sounds like it's a sweet-sounding compliment, it may not be. So now let me put bless your heart into a context that y'all might understand. Here's how it might work on the central coast. Bless his heart. He doesn't know how to drive in a roundabout. He's from Bakersfield. Bless his pea-picking heart. Well, please understand that the way I'm going to use bless your heart over and over again in today's sermon is more along the lines of sympathy and pity. So if you hear me say those words... Don't be offended. I'm not using it in the bless your heart, you're as dumb as a sack of rocks kind of way, okay? All right, remember what we saw in Hebrews 4 over the last two weeks. Because Jesus was tempted in every respect that we are, he is therefore a merciful and faithful high priest who understands our struggles with sin and temptation. He understands our temptations because he spent his entire life being bombarded by the devil. Jesus spent his entire life resisting temptation. So Jesus is not detached from our experience. He knows what it is like to resist temptation. And it is because of this that the preacher says that we can approach God's throne with confidence to find help in time of need. We can draw near to God's throne because we have a merciful and faithful high priest, namely Jesus. And that's why our big idea today is this. There is more mercy in Jesus than sin in us. There is more mercy in Jesus than there is sin in us. And we all know from experience that there is a lot of sin in us, but there is more mercy in our high priest Jesus, the one who represents us before God. And this is exactly what high priests do. They represent people. They represent sinners before God. But the difference between Jesus and the high priest under the old covenant is that Jesus never sinned. Not once. Every high priest under the old covenant was a sinner representing other sinners, but not so with Jesus. He never sinned, and that's why Jesus is better because he never sinned. He was tempted in every way that we are, but he never sinned. And that's something that no old covenant high priest could ever claim. Look at Hebrews chapter 5 beginning in verse 1 and hear the word of the Lord. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently 
with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What the preacher of Hebrews is doing here in chapter 5 is showing the contrast between the high priest of the old covenant and Jesus, who is the mediator of the new covenant, the mediator of a better covenant. The high priests in the Old Testament were chosen and appointed to represent sinners before God. And they would offer gifts and sacrifices on behalf of the people. But it wasn't like these high priests were special or holier than thou or anything like that. They were chosen because of the priestly line, because of who they were related to, the family line. But they were no different than the people that they represented. They were sinners just like the sinners that they represented before God. And because they were sinners, they could do, as verse 2 says, deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. Because they too were broken by Adam's sin. Because they too could at times be ignorant or wayward sheep. In their hearts, they knew they could be gentle with broken people who came before them. They could deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. Because they were that way too. I wonder sometimes how we do as a church in this regard. How do we treat the broken, the ignorant and the wayward. Are are we gentle with people or are we self-righteous? Do we beat them up with the law? Do more. You need to do more for the Lord. Try harder. Get your act together. Or do we offer them grace? Do we offer them mercy? Are we gentle with them? Ray Cortez, a Presbyterian pastor, recently tweeted this on Twitter. He said, at our church, We measure fidelity to Jesus by whether proud religious people resist our message and humble, broken people are drawn to it. Let me read that again. At our church, we measure fidelity to Jesus by whether proud religious people resist our message and humble, broken people are drawn to it. And I couldn't agree more. And I can tell you that that's true of this church, true of grace, true too. We measure fidelity to Jesus here at this church by whether proud religious people resist our message and humble, broken people are drawn to it. And over the last four plus years, we have seen many proud religious people resist that message and leave But we have seen many, many, many humble, broken people responding to the gospel. And that's what church is about. The church is to be a place where the broken and hurting of this world are not beat over their heads, but instead find healing for their hearts. I mean, call me crazy, but it seems like I heard some guy say this once. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick... Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. 
That was Jesus, by the way. And that's why tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes were hanging out with him all the time. And it was driving the religious folks nuts. Jesus went around driving all the proud religious folks nuts because he was drawn to the broken and the needy. Jesus came for the sick. He came for the broken. He came for the bruised. He came for the weak, the despised, the rejects. I read this recently, and it was a welcome message from a church to its community. And it says this, We extend a special welcome to those who are single, married, divorced, filthy rich, dirt poor, y no habla inglés. We extend a special welcome to those who are crying newborns, skinny as a rail, or could afford to lose a few pounds. We welcome you if you can sing like Andrea Bocelli, or like our pastor who can't carry a note in a bucket. You're welcome here if you're just browsing, just woke up, or just got out of jail. We extend a special welcome to those who are over 60 but not grown up yet, and to teenagers who are growing up too fast. We welcome soccer moms, NASCAR dads, starving artists, tree huggers, latte sippers, vegetarians, junk food eaters. We welcome those who are in recovery or are still addicted. We welcome you if you're having problems or you're down in the dumps or if you don't like organized religion. We've been there too. If you blew all your offering money at the dog track, you're welcome here. We welcome those who are inked, pierced, or both. We offer a special welcome to those who could use a prayer right now or had religion shoved down your throat as a kid or got lost in traffic and wound up here by mistake. We welcome tourists, seekers, doubters, bleeding hearts, and you. I can get behind that welcome. And I think Jesus would and does too. In fact, I've told people, listen, even if you were arrested on Saturday night and they let you out of jail on Sunday morning and you were a part of this church, I fully expect you to be here where we would welcome you with loving arms and walk with you through the consequences of your sin and your action. But you are welcome here. If you got out of jail on Sunday morning, this should be the place you want to go because this should be the place where broken, needy sinners are welcomed. Come to Jesus and be loved and forgiven and transformed and conformed to his image. That's the message that we want heralded from this pulpit and from our mouths out into the community. And when you preach the free grace of Jesus, guess what? It draws in humble, broken people. It draws in the ignorant, the wayward, the sick, the broken, the bruised, the weak, the despised, the rejects, and it drives the proud religious folks nuts. And it drives them away too. You know what I want to say to proud religious people? Bless your heart. And not in the nice way. That's how sinful I am. Not in the nice way. Proud religious people drive me nuts. But sadly, what proud religious people need most is the gospel. And sometimes they leave a church because that church preaches on the very thing they need, the gospel. The free grace of God. What do prideful, self-righteous people need? They need the gospel. And I can be prideful and self-righteous. So I'm, I'm admitting that I need the gospel every day too. 
Because I can be prideful about the prideful and self-righteous, if that makes sense. I can be a Pharisee about Pharisees, as odd as that sounds. Milton Vincent says, Preaching the gospel to myself each day mounts a powerful assault against my pride and serves to establish humility in its place. Nothing suffocates my pride more than daily reminders regarding the glory of my God, the gravity of my sins, and the crucifixion of God's own Son in my place. Pride wilts in the atmosphere of the gospel. And those are the three things that we want heralded from this pulpit and emphasized every week here at Grace. Reminders regarding the glory of God. Reminders about the gravity of our sins and reminders of the crucifixion of God's own son in our place. And when that's the message that you preach, it makes you be gentle with the ignorant and the wayward that you come across in your life. And when you're ignorant and wayward and you stray away from Jesus, those people can offer you mercy and grace too. The high priests in the old covenant should not have been prideful because they too were sinners offering sacrifices for fellow sinners. They might have been tempted to be prideful, but they had no reason to be. And that's why they could deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, as verse 2 says, since he himself is beset with weakness. The high priest could deal gently with sinners because they were sinners. And because they were sinners, guess what? They needed forgiveness too. Look at verse 3. Because of this, the high priest, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. The high priest under the old covenant didn't get to choose this position. They had to be chosen by God just like Aaron was. You just couldn't wake up one day and say, when I grow up, I want to be a high priest. You had to be in the priestly lineage. You had to be related to the right people. And you had to be chosen by God if you wanted to represent other sinners before a holy God. But not only did the high priest offer sacrifices for the sins of others, they offered sacrifices for their sins because they were sinners too. And as ignorant, wayward sinners came to them to make sacrifices for their sins, and as these ignorant, wayward sinners were downcast for their ignorance and their wayward hearts, I'm sure the high priest dealt gently with them, and I'm sure they shared the good news of the gospel with them. And if these high priests had lived long enough to read Puritan Richard Sibbs, I'm sure they may have quoted his words to the people that came to them. Richard Sibbs said, Shall our sins discourage us when he appears there only for sinners? Are you bruised? Be of good comfort. He calls you. Conceal not your wounds. Open all before him and take not Satan's counsel. Never fear to go to God since we have such a mediator with him who is not only our friend but our brother and husband. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. And it's the same gospel encouragement that's held out to us today. Shall our sins discourage us when Jesus appears there only for sinners? Shall our sins discourage us 
We are who Jesus came for. So rejoice, Christian, because there is more mercy in Jesus than sin in us. This is why Jesus came, to save sinners. This is why Jesus came, to show mercy. And he did not come to exalt himself. He didn't come because he heard all the cool Jewish kids were becoming high priests. He was actually appointed to this position by God the Father. Look at verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus was appointed by God the Father to be the great, merciful, and faithful high priest that sinners like you and me need. So Jesus is not some random high priest. He's not just some guy from the line of Aaron. He's not just a good Jewish boy from the backwoods of Judah. He is the eternal son of God. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So Jesus is not just some high priest. He is God. And that makes a huge difference. Who is our high priest, Grace? It's Jesus, the eternal son of God, begotten by God the Father. And here in verse 5, the preacher of Hebrews quotes Psalm 2 to back up what he's saying about Jesus. The preacher actually quotes a different psalm here, if you can believe it. Can you believe it? The preacher finally quits quoting Psalm 95, which he's been quoting in chapter 3 and chapter 4 like crazy. And I don't know why, probably because people were complaining that he was too repetitious in his sermons. And so now he moves on to quote Psalm 2. And when the preacher of Hebrews Quote Psalm 2 in verse 5, he's detonating a huge hope-filled bomb. The preacher quotes Psalm 2 to remind the Hebrews that it is foolish to turn away from Jesus because Jesus is the son that is mentioned in Psalm 2. Remember, the preacher has been warning the Hebrews of the danger of turning away from Jesus and going back to Moses. He's been warning them against unbelief. He doesn't want to happen to them what happened to the first generation of Israelites that came out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses. They turned away in unbelief. And so now he quotes Psalm 2 to let them know that Jesus, the Jesus they are in danger of leaving, that Jesus is the warrior son of Psalm 2. And here's how Jesus The begotten Son of God is described in Psalm 2. Listen to what God the Father says to Jesus in Psalm 2 and see if you get why the preacher of Hebrews quotes it here to the Hebrews. Here's Psalm 2, verses 6 through 9. Here's God the Father speaking at first. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And now Jesus speaks. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So what does God say in Psalm 2 to Jesus? The Messiah, the anointed one, his eternal son. 
What does he say to Jesus, the one the Hebrews are in danger of turning away from in order to go back to Moses? Here's what God the Father says to his son Jesus. Roughly, God the Father says this to Jesus. You are my son, and I have installed you as king, and your kingdom will cover the whole earth. Yes, we started in the backwoods of Judah with 11 acres. Yes, we started with the rinky-dink kingdom in Zion, but your kingdom will be worldwide, son. Your kingdom sweeps the entire earth, but not just the earth. It encompasses the entire universe. And all nations belong to you, son. All nations will bow before you. And how will we accomplish all this? You, my son, shall break them with an iron rod, a war club, and you will smash them into pieces like pottery. That's what God is saying to Jesus in Psalm 2. God is saying to Jesus, I love you, son, and I have a wonderful plan for your life. You will take a war club to your enemies and break them like pieces of pottery. Your kingdom will be forever. Jesus swings a war club. Jesus has a war club in hand. If you're a fan of The Walking Dead and you watch the show or read the comic books, he carries a weapon maybe perhaps like Negan, if you're familiar with that. Jesus carries a war club in his hand. And some of you are just getting warmed up to Jesus. Some of you are just starting to like Jesus. And some of you may be uncomfortable with this picture of Jesus. But this Jesus, the Jesus of Psalm 2, he's your high priest, your merciful, faithful, great high priest, Christian. This Jesus, the one who brandishes a war club, this Jesus came for sinners like us. And there is more mercy in this Jesus than there is sin in us. There is more mercy in the war club wielding Jesus than there is sin in us. And that is amazing. And this Jesus that is mentioned in Psalm 2, and this Jesus that is mentioned in Hebrews 5, he's the Jesus that you just might need the closer we get to our presidential election. You might want to spend the next few months hanging out and meditating on the Jesus of Psalm 2. Now, perhaps some of you are thinking this this morning. Hey, pastor, I was just starting to like this Jesus that's mentioned in Psalm 2. He's an underdog. He comes from nothing. He comes from the backwoods of Judah, from Zion. And then he becomes king. And I like that story. It's a true rags-to-riches story, Pastor. And you had to go ruin it with all this talk about nations getting beaten down by a war club and being smashed into pieces. I don't like that Jesus, Pastor. I like my Jesus with nicely feathered hair and soft, silky hands that smell like raspberry lotion. Well, I'm sorry to offend you. Bless your heart. But this is vintage Jesus, the king swinging the war club in Psalm 2, the one who is the heir to everything, the one who has the nations as his inheritance, the one begotten by God the Father. That king is Jesus, the great and merciful and faithful high priest of Hebrews. And when he returns, he's not giving everyone a smiley face sticker. He's not giving everyone a trophy. He's coming back, but not to be welcomed by a world that loves him. He is coming back to nations and kingdoms and leaders that hate his guts. 
And he will impose his rule by force on rebellious people because this world, this universe belongs to him. And that means then that this picture of Jesus swinging a blood-stained war club must infect your politics. This picture of Jesus reigning as king over his enemies must be what stirs your emotions when you watch the news and when you read the newspapers and when you forward those political emails and when you comment on those pictures on Facebook. And when you watch the presidential debates on TV, it must be this picture of Jesus that governs everything that you think and feel. God loves Jesus and has a wonderful plan for his life. He will rule over his enemies. He will impose his rule with a war club because he has been appointed the heir of all things, as Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 says. And this Jesus is the one who was appointed by God to be your high priest, Christian. This Jesus, the one swinging a blood-stained war club, this Jesus is a great and merciful and faithful high priest to sinners like you and me. This is your God, Christian, your merciful Caring, compassionate, gracious, tender, high priest. He reigns supreme. Your high priest rules over the nations. The nations belong to your merciful, faithful, great high priest, Jesus. Oh, I know we don't see that much in our world right now. We don't see the nations in submission to Jesus. We don't see politicians in submission to Jesus. We don't see governments in submission to him. But that's a part of God's plan. Everything belongs to his son. And everything and everyone will submit to the son. But we don't see that right now. And this powerful, club-wielding son who will come again to destroy his enemies, this Jesus is your high priest Christian and when you sin he is merciful to you Jesus responds more with pity to your sin Christian than anger there is more mercy in him than there is sin in you and there is a lot of sin in you there is a lot of sin in you oh I'm sorry I went and offended you again Bless your heart. But it's true. There's a lot of sin in you. There's a lot of sin in me. But there's more mercy in Jesus. Don't let his war club fool you, child of God. There is so much mercy in Jesus. Don't let his bloody war club fool you, Christian, because there is so much mercy in Jesus. And that means then, Christian, that when you are ignorant and you are a wayward sheep and you run away from him, this club-wielding son does not use that club on you. Please let me say that again. When you were ignorant and wayward and you chase after 10,000 pleasures outside of Christ, this club-wielding son does not use that club on you. 
When you are ignorant and wayward, the club-wielding son does not use his war club on you, Christian. No, he deals gently with you. He's merciful. He's tender with you. He's compassionate. He's sympathetic. He comes in love. He comes in mercy. When you are wayward, running from him, when you are ignorant, choosing sin over him, when you act like the sheep, that you are the begotten son of Psalm 2, the begotten son of Hebrews 5, he is merciful to you. I'm sorry I went and offended you again. I called you a sheep. Bless your heart. I called you a sheep, and sheep are notorious for being messy and stinky and dumb. Listen, I know when we think of sheep, we like to think of some cute little plush toy that you can win at the state fair, or or we think of some precious moments Bible sheep, but that is nowhere to be found in the Bible. If David or Peter or the preacher of Hebrews saw a picture of the sheep that grace our children's Bibles, they would be confused because we really don't know what sheep are like. We have made them into these cute little precious moments creatures. Unlike most of us, people in the Bible times were very familiar with sheep. They knew that sheep wandered. They knew that sheep were ignorant, which is why they refer to sinners as sheep all the time. And the high priest and the prophets in the Old Testament knew that people were just like sheep. Surely the high priest and the worshipers under the Old Covenant caught the irony as people brought sheep forward to be sacrificed. I can see the high priest thinking to himself, this wayward, ignorant sheep, this animal, this wayward, ignorant sheep has been brought to me to be sacrificed for the sins of this wayward, ignorant sheep who is an Israelite. What irony. Wayward, ignorant sheep were presented to the high priests, who were also wayward, ignorant sheep, by worshipers who themselves were wayward, ignorant sheep. And if we are sheep, then guess what? We are as dumb as a sack of rocks. We are wayward. We are ignorant. Oops, I did it again. I went and offended you again and called you ignorant. Bless your heart. But don't get mad at me. God inspired the biblical authors to choose this imagery because everyone in ancient Israel was familiar with sheep because sheep were everyone. Everyone knew what sheep were like. And in case you're unfamiliar with sheep, It's not a nice thing to be called a sheep. This is not a compliment. You should not respond to the Bible calling you a sheep, like Psalm 23, this way. You should not say to David this way, Oh, David, you're so sweet. When you say in Psalm 23 that the Lord is my shepherd, you're saying that I'm a precious little fluffy sheep. So kind of you, David. So precious, so kind of you to say that dear thing. So kind of you to call me a precious lamb. Bless your heart, David. You're not supposed to respond to David that way. He called you a sheep and that is not a compliment. By saying that we have a shepherd, David is telling us in Psalm 23 that we are sheep and David is throwing us under the proverbial bus. He's stripping us of all of our self-righteousness, stripping us of all of our pride and exposing us for who we are, wayward and ignorant sheep. So please, when you read the word sheep, don't think bleach white, 
fluffy stuffed animals that you can win at the state fair if you throw enough rings around some bottles. Sheep are messy. Sheep are dirty. Sheep are stupid. We are messy. We are dirty. And we are stupid. Bless our hearts. Professor John Holbert describes sheep this way. Sheep need constant watching as they stick their ever-hungry snouts into the grass below them or into the hinder parts of the sheep in front of them and wander without a thought up and down the land, eating and defecating and straying up dangerous hillsides and down into rushing waters, foolishly risking fleece and mutton again and again to the utter frustration and consternation of the shepherd who must be constantly vigilant lest another of her charges drown or fail or fall, or be snatched away by the lurking predators of the forest and vale. Shepherding is no pleasant walk in the dog park. It is hard, dusty, smelly, constant labor, and if I am a sheep, I am lost without a shepherd. That's us, Grace. We're stinky, dirty, messy, dumb sheep, and we are lost without our shepherd, the good shepherd. We're lost without Jesus, our high priest. And we are sheep, right? We're wayward, we're ignorant, we're messy, we're dirty. Sheep are filthy, sheep stray, sheep get lost. And therefore, since the church is made up of sheep, and you've heard me say this many times, since the church is made up of sheep, it's gonna be messy and dirty around here. And I'm not talking about the the physical appearance of the building, I'm talking about our messy, broken lives. Since the church is made up of sheep, it's going to be messy and dirty around here. You have to understand that about grace. You have to understand that about this church. This place is full of sheep, and therefore it is going to be messy. It is going to be dirty. It is going to be filthy. It is not going to be a clean place. So don't have ideas about cleaning up the church. Because as long as you and I are around, as long as I am around, this place is not going to be clean. It's going to be messy. We don't need more Clorox bleach here. We don't need disinfectant. What we need is a Savior, a Savior whose blood alone washes us and whose blood alone cleanses us from all of our sins, all of our failures, all of our messiness. We need a Savior, a Savior who is a merciful and faithful high priest to wayward and ignorant people like us. Of course, when I say that it's going to be messy around here, I don't mean that we delight in sin. I don't mean that we take a low view of sin. We should hate sin. My goodness, if you leave here thinking that we condone sin at grace, then you have done what our children's director, Michelle Winger, always says. You have mislistened. Bless your heart, you have mislistened. If you think that we have a flippant attitude towards sin, my goodness, you have mislistened. We hate sin here at Grace. We firmly believe what Scotty Smith said is true. You cannot shock Jesus with your sin, nor persuade him to leave you alone in it. Jesus is a merciful faithful high priest, and you cannot shock him with your sin. You can't. You can't cause Jesus to be flabbergasted at your sin. But you also can't persuade him to leave you alone in it. 
He loves you too much to leave you alone in it. And that's why he will keep calling out to you, calling out to you, calling out to you, and wooing you back to him. Why? Because Jesus never leaves his post as high priest. Under the old covenant, high priests worked, they had time off, and they eventually retired. But Jesus never takes a break. Jesus doesn't get a coffee break. He's on duty forever as a high priest. As verse 6 says, as he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now we'll get more into Melchizedek in the coming weeks, but if you're dying to know, crack open your Bible and there's a little bit of information about him in Genesis 14. And also one of the Psalms mentions him. But the point of the preacher of Hebrews here is that Jesus is our high priest forever. So as long as he is a priest, and as long as we keep on sinning, he is there. He is there in chasing us down in love to woo us back to him, to be satisfied in him. He is there as our loving high priest, and we cannot persuade him, we cannot convince him to leave us alone in our sin. He simply loves us too much to leave us in our sin. You cannot make a case to Jesus as to why you should linger in your sin. He's not buying it. He loves you too much. But he is also there for us whenever we do sin. When we blow it. When we sin for the umpteenth time. He is always there. We never draw near to the throne of grace to see a sign that says, be back in two hours. He is always there. Always there for wayward and ignorant sinners. And that may sting a little. And you may be offended But it's true, and it's good news. Just let it bless your heart this morning. And as we close, let these words from Puritan Thomas Boston bless your heart as well. He said this, that Christ's love should extend to the ungodly, to sinners, to enemies that were in arms of rebellion against him. Yea, not only so, but that he should hug them in his arms, lodge them in his bosom, dandle them upon his knees, and lay them to his breast that they may suck and be satisfied is the highest improvement of love. For what nature can love where it is hated? What nature can forgive where it is provoked? What nature can offer reconciliation where it receiveth wrong? What nature can heap up kindness upon contempt favor upon ingratitude, mercy upon sin. And yet Christ's love hath led him to all this. So that well may we spend all our days in admiring and adoring of this wonderful love and be always ravished with the thoughts of it. Why admire Jesus this morning? Why adore him this morning? Why be ravished with thoughts of him this morning? Here's why. Because there is more mercy in Jesus than sin in us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for how merciful you are to us. We do wander like sheep all the time. And there you are calling us and wooing us back. And when we try to convince ourselves it's okay to stay in sin, you never buy it. You just keep calling us back with your love. We thank you 
that you are our great shepherd because we would be lost without you. We would be lost without our high priest. Turn our hearts toward your son again this morning by the power of the spirit, Father, so that we may admire him and adore him and be ravished with thoughts of him for his glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.